Hello, I'm Rob Buckingham. Welcome to Digging Deeper, episode 51. Through each podcast episode, we dig deeper into a theme or topic to see what the Bible says about it. This episode discusses Jesus' rather blunt responses to three guys who ask to follow him. What's going on? Why is Jesus so direct with these men? Later in the podcast, I'll share some thoughts on the identity of the eunuchs Jesus mentions in Matthew 19. But first, what happened to Enoch and Elijah's bodies? Let's find out. I wonder about Enoch and Elijah and what happened to their bodies. So let's get into this as our first question. According to the Bible, both Enoch and Elijah are the only two people in Scripture that God took to heaven without them dying. So let's have a look at some Scripture in this regard. And the first is in Genesis 5 and verse 24. Enoch walked faithfully with God. Then he was no more because God took him away. Uh, Seems fairly, it's a little bit vague, I guess, doesn't it? Uh, This is attested to as well in Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 5, the great faith chapter. Uh, So the writer of Hebrews says that by faith Enoch was taken from this life so that he did not experience death. And so the writer there really kind of, hones in on Genesis 5.24 and says this is the case. So remember, Genesis chapters 1 to 11 are viewed by the majority of Jewish scholars as metaphorical. So they could be stories based, in fact, definitely, but they're more campfire stories that are passed from generation to generation. And then between the years of 1200 and 200 BC, these stories were gradually written down and then eventually compiled into the Tanakh, what Christians refer to as the Old Testament. So let's have a look a little bit more about uh, Enoch, first of all. So Enoch walked faithfully with God, then he was no more because God took him. The word take here or taken means to transfer to another place. So we're not told to which place Enoch was transferred, but one would assume that it was a better place because this is a reward for his piety, for his living a good life. So one would not think that he was transferred to a rotten place. Um, he was transferred to a better place, but we're not told which place that is. I guess the majority of Christians would view that as uh, as heaven, or at least in the presence of God. And uh, then there is Elijah. So in 2 Kings chapter 2 and verse 11, as they were walking along and talking together, suddenly a chariot of fire and horses of fire appeared and separated the two of them, and Elijah went up to heaven in a whirlwind. So Elisha and Elijah walking together and then suddenly this incredible supernatural experience taking place, chariots and horses of fire separating Elijah and Elisha and Elijah went up to heaven in a whirlwind. So I believe there's some imagery here. 
Um, yes, this could be a literal event, but certainly some imagery. So in scripture, the whirlwind imagery is normally connected to God's presence, God's activity in the world. And the chariot of fire, of course, may also typify God's involvement as well as the flaming horses. Who brought the flaming horses in here? Uh, why did God spare them for dying from dying, Elijah and, uh, and Enoch? Well, we're not told. The Bible simply doesn't say. Uh, some people think that uh, Revelation 11 is interesting. Uh, it's got um, the story of two people, two men, who are referred to as the two witnesses uh, outside Jerusalem during the tribulation period. And some people think that because uh, Enoch and Elijah didn't die, that God brings them back during the tribulation as the two witnesses. It's an interesting theory. There is no proof for that anywhere in Scripture. So anybody who suggests that would be arguing from silence, which is probably uh, not the best argument. So the end of the story is simply, you know, what happened to the bodies of Enoch and Elijah nobody knows we are not told uh, it is likely that they are still in the place whatever place that was that god took them to or transferred them to the bodies are still there but we do, we really don't know Let's get into question number two about Luke chapter nine. There were various people who asked to do other things before they follow Jesus. For example, one says to Jesus, let me go and say goodbye to my family, which seems like a very realistic and fair request. But if you read those verses in Luke, then it doesn't seem that Jesus thinks they're particularly fair. So why is that? Let's do a little deep dive into these verses. This is Luke chapter 9, and we'll pick it up at verse 57. As they were walking along the road, a man said to Jesus, I will follow you wherever you go. Jesus replied, foxes have dens and birds have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. Jesus said to another man, follow me. But he replied, Lord, first let me go and bury my father. Jesus said to him, let the dead bury their own dead, but you go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Still another said, I will follow you, Lord, but first let me say, uh, go back and say goodbye to my family. Jesus replied, no one who puts a hand to the plow and looks back is fit for service in the kingdom of God. Philosophers in Jesus' day often gave enormous demands to test prospective followers. Jesus did this too, and we see this on a fairly regular basis in the Gospels. And invariably, when you read about large crowds gathering around Jesus, after those um, references to the large crowds, we invariably see some tough teaching from Jesus. And it's like Jesus is sorting out the crowd. So lots of people there, and Jesus goes, yeah, yeah, it's great. I want to feed you. I want to bless you. I want to heal you. But if you really want to be a disciple, a follower, rather than just someone that's hanging out in the crowd, then there's there's a, there's a, a kind of a tougher standard for you. And we see Jesus laying this down regularly in the Gospels, and certainly in these verses 
in Luke 9. And so that's what Jesus does with these three guys as they were walking along the road. Now, two men initiated a conversation with Jesus, and then the second of the guys, Jesus started the discussion with him. So let's look at these three men, and originally I will call them first man, second man, and third man. So let's look at the first man first of all. Matthew's account of this story, by the way, identifies this guy as a scribe. Uh, scribes were experts in the law, and sometimes in Scripture they're referred to as lawyers, and they're the same group, scribes and lawyers. These were religious experts who appealed to precedent, and so these were the people, they were, they were ultra-conservative, and I don't mean politically or even in personality, but, but in their outlook on life, and I'm going to write a blog on that topic this week. It'll probably be published tomorrow. But these guys, their, their favourite saying would be, this is the way we've always done it. This is the way it's always been done. Whereas, of course, Jesus comes along um, and 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 his, his teaching is radical and progressive. So you can imagine the cultural clash that would happen between Jesus, who's pioneering the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God, uh, and the scribes, the lawyers, this is the way it's always been done. So obviously a, a clash taking place here. And so this scribe says to Jesus, I will follow you wherever you go, which is a stunning statement from an ultra-conservative individual, isn't it? There must have been something that he saw in the life and person of Jesus that he found highly attractive and maybe he was caught up in the emotion of, an, of the moment and Jesus is trying to sort out here the real heart commitment from the emotional experience. Oh, I will follow you wherever you go, Jesus. And Jesus' response is absolutely fascinating. Uh, he says to this guy, foxes have dens or holes, some translations say, and birds have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. What did Jesus mean by this? A couple of questions will help us to understand what Jesus is saying. The first of the questions is this. Are you ready for a difficult and unpredictable life? He wasn't suggesting that to be a true disciple, you had to be homeless. Because if you take that statement literally, foxes have dens, birds have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head, Jesus is not here teaching that he's homeless. But he is saying there are, there are times, there are evenings, there are days where we don't know where we're going to stop and rest. Are you ready for a difficult and unpredictable life? Jesus is not saying here, go and sell your house. Um, and don't rent one either, by the way. Uh, to be a true disciple of mine, you've got to be homeless. You've got to sleep rough. No, that's not correct. In fact, it's strongly inferred in the Gospels that Jesus actually had his own house. And we shouldn't be surprised by that. I mean, he was a carpenter and the son of a carpenter. It's likely that Joseph had built a house for him and Mary uh, and the family and that Jesus and maybe Joseph and some of the other brothers and sisters had built homes for one another. So in Scripture, in the Gospels, it refers to the house on occasion. And when it's talking about the house, it's likely Jesus' house. And so one such um, example you'll find in Mark's Gospel, chapter 2, 
You might know the story. There's the lame man lying on his mat and his friends want to get him to Jesus. And so they're carrying him on his mat. They realize they can't get into the house because there's so many people pressing around the house. And so these guys climb up onto the flat roof of the house and they literally dig through the roof and make a hole, a large hole. Think about it, large enough to let a man through lying on a mattress in front of Jesus. And they then lower this guy, probably using ropes, on the mattress in front of Jesus inside the house. Now, if that house belonged to somebody else, Jesus and the house owners may well have had something to say about this, but this is likely to be Jesus' house. And was he concerned about the hole in the roof? Well, maybe, maybe not. We're not told. But he was overwhelmed by the faith of these four guys, not the guy on the mat, but the four friends who moved heaven and earth and a ceiling and a roof literally to get this guy in front of Jesus. And so Jesus said to this guy, um, take up your mat, get up, walk, go home. <laughs> you know, the guy did, and uh, an amazing story. So that was likely something that happened in Jesus' house. So Jesus is warning this would-be disciple of the hardships that would be involved in following him. He's asking, are you ready for a difficult and unpredictable life? So that's question number one. The second question that we need to ask to get the understanding of what's happening here is, are you ready to help me with my mission? The main purpose of foxholes or dens and uh, birds' nests is a place of reproduction, not just a place of sleep. Foxes and birds have a place to reproduce themselves, but as yet, the Son of Man does not have a body on which to lay his head in order to reproduce himself. And so Jesus' response was that the cost of following him was the responsibility and willingness to be an expression of Jesus everywhere you go. So literally, if you're going to be a disciple of Jesus, you need to reproduce Jesus everywhere you go. And really, that is by us incarnating, fleshing out the Word, just like Jesus is the Word who became flesh and dwelt among us. Those of us who are his genuine disciples will also flesh out the Word in the way that we live and interact with other people. And so Jesus is asking this guy, this scribe, are you willing to do this? Uh, while on earth, the Son of Man has no place to lay his head, he's saying, but the resurrected and glorified Christ has found a home. And we find the truth of that in Colossians chapter 1 and verse 18. Jesus is now the head of the body, which is the church. And there's many other scriptures that we could use in this regard. Uh, Ephesians chapter 1, verses 22, 23, God placed all things under Jesus' feet and appointed him to be head over everything for the church, which is his body the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. And Ephesians 5.29, after all, no one ever hated his own body, but he feeds and cares for it just as Christ does the church. And so the Son of Man now has a place to lay his head. The second man, uh, Matthew identifies this man as a disciple of Jesus already. And Jesus says to this disciple, follow me. So he's asking a disciple to follow him. 
I find this fascinating because a disciple, you would imagine, is already following Jesus. And so this guy's following Jesus. He's on the road with Jesus. And Jesus turns to this guy who's following him and says, follow me. What's going on here? It's fascinating. Jesus is actually, I believe, taking a deeper look at his true condition. Uh, a little bit like the the rich young guy who comes to Jesus one day and says, Jesus, what would I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus says, keep all of the commandments. And the rich young guy says, yeah, yeah, I already do all those commandments. And then Jesus looks right into him and says, yeah, but one thing you lack, go and sell everything you have, give it to the poor, and then come and follow me. And the gospel writer tells us that the young man left Jesus very sad. So this young guy wanted to follow Jesus. Jesus looked right into his heart, saw the one thing that would be a stumbling block in this guy's life. Remember, he didn't say that to everybody. He didn't say to everyone, sell everything you have, give the money to the poor and come and follow me because he had people uh, amongst his disciples, men and women, particularly the women, who were supporting him financially and supporting the um, the whole process of this team of people traveling around Palestine, teaching and preaching about the kingdom of heaven. So he had followers that had money, who had substance and were willing to give that. Uh, Judas, of course, was willing to take it. And so he only says this to the guy, this young guy, and that's because this young guy, his stumbling block was his possessions. Now, some people think that that young man was Barnabas, and, uh, and, and I like to think so as well, and that he went away sad, but then gradually, maybe over the next few months or even years, he started thinking this through and decided that he was going to sell stuff, give it to the poor, and be a follower of Jesus. And so the next time we see him is in the book of Acts. And what's he doing? He sold a block of land. He brought the money. He laid it at the disciples or the apostles' feet, which was a sign that the money was not for the apostles. It was for the apostles to distribute to uh, the poor amongst the church. And so we see um, Barnabas had gone full circle and decided to become a genuine follower of Jesus. So I think something similar is happening here with this second guy. He's following Jesus. Jesus turns around on the road, looks him in the eyes and says, follow me, because he knows that there's something, some barrier, some hindrance in this life. He's following Jesus, but not completely. And then that's revealed in this guy's answer because the man says, Lord, let me first go and bury my father which sounds like a reasonable request until you, well, I was going to say until you dig a little deeper into that, but we're talking about burial, so maybe that's not the best analogy for me to use. Burial took place very soon after death, as it still does in many Middle Eastern countries and cultures. So if the father had just died, he probably would have been buried the same day. The man would then be free to follow Jesus. If he was the eldest son, it would be his responsibility to see to his father's burial. So there's a couple of options as to what's happening here, and it doesn't really matter whether we take option one or option two because the outcome is the same. So option one is that a year after the first burial, a second burial would take place in which the bones were exhumed and then placed in a special box 
and then placed in a slot in the tomb wall. If this was the case, this guy was asking Jesus for up to a year's delay before he decided to follow him. Option two, wait until I bury my father, was a way of saying, wait until all of my family obligations are completed. So in this case, the young man would be asking for an indefinite delay until he genuinely followed Jesus as a disciple. It's likely from this guy's answer that his father wasn't actually dead yet. And when I was when I was studying this, I kept thinking about that scene in the Monty Python movie, the uh, Holy Grail, you know, when they're walking through the town and ringing the bell, bring out the dead, bring out the dead. And uh, one of the guys brings out his father, except the father's not dead yet. And so the whole discussion goes on. And the dad's like, I'm not dead yet, you know. No, I'm feeling fine. I want to go for a walk. I want to go for a walk and all of that kind of stuff. So it's a great scene. You can watch it on um you can watch it on, on YouTube if you want to do that. Bring out your dead. Either way, this guy was making excuses as to why he wouldn't completely follow Jesus yet. Hence, Jesus' response, um, which sounds blunt until you really understand the backstory, is it let the dead bury their own dead, but you go and proclaim the kingdom of God. So it sounds blunt and unreasonable, but it isn't. Who are the dead who are to be left to bury their own dead? One suggestion is that the Aramaic words that Jesus would have been speaking here have been mistranslated into the Greek and that what Jesus actually said was leave the dead to the burier of the dead. That is to say, there are people whose professional work it is to bury the dead and they can be left to look after that business. Jesus' words could also mean leave the spiritually dead to bury the physically dead. In other words, there are people who are quite insensitive to the claims of the kingdom of God and they can deal with routine matters like the burial of the dead. But those who are alive to the kingdom of God need to give it their first place. In either case, Jesus' words communicate the message that there is more important work for the disciple of Jesus to do. It's an interesting message because burial, even of dead strangers, was regarded as a highly commendable work of piety in Judaism. How much more the burial of one's own family. Attendance to the duty of burying one's parents was held to be implied in the fifth commandment, honour your father and mother. It took precedence over the most solemn religious obligations. But so important in Jesus' eyes was the business of following him and promoting the values of the kingdom of God that it took precedence even over the burial of the dead. That brings us to our third and final man who uh, says to Jesus, I will follow you, Lord, but first let me go back and say goodbye to my family. Again, sounds like a very reasonable and fair request, doesn't it? But Jesus says to this guy, no one who has put a hand to the plow and looked back is fit for service in the kingdom of God. In other words, Jesus viewed a person's biological family as less important 
than following him. Family ties, Jesus says, must take second place to the kingdom of God. And I find this fascinating. Now, I'm very aware that there are cult groups that play on this and push it to the limit and then say to the people within the cult, you've got to break off ties with your family, don't communicate with them and all of this kind of stuff. That is not what Jesus is teaching here. What he is teaching, though, is priorities. And he talks about it a few chapters later in Luke chapter 14. He says, if anyone comes to me and does not hate father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even their own life, such a person cannot be my disciple. Now, on face value, that sounds horribly blunt. Um it also seems like it kind of contradicts scriptures where it says, honor your father and mother, you know, like care for the needs of your family, all of those sorts of things. So what is this saying? I don't believe that the word hate there is actually a very good translation of that word. Uh, the word in the original Greek means to love less. And so what Jesus is talking about here is not hatred, but priorities. He's saying, if anyone comes to me and doesn't have priorities, so yeah, love your father, love your parents, love your mother, love your wife, love your children, your brothers and sisters. Um, yeah, love your own life, look after yourself, care for your own needs. Um, but such a person can't be my disciple unless we put the priority of the kingdom of God above all of the other things. Now, that's a challenge. I, I, come across a lot of followers of Jesus who prioritize family ties above the ties to the kingdom. And Jesus is saying, if you want to be a genuine disciple of mine, then you need to put me and my kingdom ahead of everything and everyone else. So the word hate there is not a great translation. It means really to love less and to have priorities. Now, this guy, the third man, may have had the story of Elijah and Elisha in mind. In 1 Kings chapter 19, verses 19 to 21, we read this. So Elijah went from there and found Elisha, son of Shaphat. He was plowing with 12 yoke of oxen, and he himself was driving the 12th pair. Elijah went up to him and threw his cloak around him. Elisha then left his oxen and ran after Elijah. Let me kiss my father and mother goodbye, he said, and then I will come with you. Go back, Elijah replied. What have I done to you? Great question. What he's asking there is what does this signify? So the throwing of the cloak, uh, uh, Elijah's cloak around Elisha was symbolic of the anointing the prophetic anointing that was on Elijah's life, he was placing it, that calling of God, that mantle of the Holy Spirit, he was placing it on Elisha. But Elijah says to him, yeah, go back, say goodbye to your family. And so that's what Elisha does. The next verses say, so Elisha left him, went back. He took his yoke of oxen and slaughtered them. He burned the plowing equipment to cook the meat, and then he gave it to the people and they ate and then he set out to follow Elijah and became his servant. Fascinating story. What was Elisha doing here? He was burning up the past. He was burning the bridge, if you like. He uh, was a farmer. 
he had his animals, he had his plowing gear, and he decided that, yep, Elijah had called him to follow him, to be a disciple, prophet. And so he burned up all of his plowing gear and he used the fire to roast the meat of the animals that he just slaughtered, fed all the people, and then he left. What he was saying here is there's no turning back. I've just sacrificed my entire livelihood. All of my life I've just sacrificed, and then he follows Elijah. So you would think this guy, this third man with Jesus, was thinking the same thing. Elijah had no problem with this, but Jesus did. He did. And so um, Jesus' call is more radical than a radical prophet. Uh, Jesus' response to him literally in the Greek is this, no one having laid the hand upon the plough and looking on the things behind is fit for the kingdom of God. And so it could be a reference there to Elijah and Elisha's story and the ploughing uh, that, that Jesus is picking up as well. If you're putting your hand to the plough, you need to keep looking forward. You don't look back. You don't look to the side. It's like if you're driving a car, right? and you look to the side or you look behind you, you tend to swerve. And so what Jesus is saying here is you won't be fit for the kingdom of God if you keep looking behind you. You will swerve off course. The word fit there means to be well prepared, ready for use, and fit for service. Jesus is not talking about salvation here. That's a completely other subject. He's talking about discipleship. If you want to be a genuine follower of Jesus, a disciple of Jesus, you need to keep looking ahead. The word disciple is an interesting word. The Greek word is mathetes, and it's actually the word we get our English word mathematics from. And it means to count the cost of what it means to be a follower of Jesus. Just like in mathematics, you would count something in, in discipleship, we count the cost of following Jesus. And we work out in our minds that, yes, it is worth following Jesus, or no, it's not. But at least Jesus says here, he says, do your sums, do your maths, work it out. Are you going to follow me or not? And if you're going to follow me, follow me properly. Uh, that kind of person doesn't put their hand to the plow and look back. The work of the kingdom of God requires singleness of purpose. We need to keep our eyes fixed forward. It reminds me um, of a story of uh, a second cousin of mine. It was my mum's cousin, uh, uh, my uncle Michael, I used to call him. And I have very fond memories of Uncle Michael. Uh, he was he never got married. Uh, he was quite well off. He was very generous whenever he would come and visit us. He would uh, he'd go and buy a massive big bag of chocolate and lollies and stuff and bring it to us. And so myself and my sister and my younger brother always used to love Uncle Michael coming to visit. He was pretty eccentric. And, uh, I mean, this is back in the 60s. He had a little black and white portable TV set up on the back parcel rack of his car and he'd wired it all up with an, with an aerial and plugged it into his battery. And he used to drive along. He'd put the rear vision mirror on his TV so he'd be able to drive along in his car watching television at the same time. Now, he didn't swerve, of course, um, but 
he was an accident waiting to happen. I mean, luckily he never killed anybody and he lived to a ripe old age, passed away a few years ago. Uh, but it reminds me of this story of Jesus. He says, really, you know, if you're going to follow me, keep your eyes on the road, as the old uh, Doors song would say, and your hands upon the wheel. The Apostle Paul uh, used the same example in Philippians chapter 3, verses 13 and 14. But one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining toward what is ahead, I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. You keep looking ahead. We're not told how these three men responded. Did any of these would-be disciples listen to Jesus and act positively to his challenge? We don't know. Ultimately, it doesn't matter. What does matter is how we respond. How do I respond to Jesus' call to unswerving discipleship? Ask yourself that question. Have I put my hand to the plough? Do I look constantly back at the things behind me, uh, at my past regrets, at my past successes? Am I living with a backward glance or am I looking ahead? Do I, as the Hebrews writer said, run with perseverance, the, the race marked out for me, fixing my eyes on Jesus? the pioneer and perfecter of my faith. We hope you're enjoying this Digging Deeper podcast and that it helps you with your understanding of the Bible and how it applies to life. If you're finding it helpful, please let others know about it. One way to do this is by rating and reviewing the podcast on iTunes. That goes a long way to help other people find us. And please like us on Facebook. Now back to Rob. I have a question about Matthew chapter 19, verse 12. Are those born eunuchs another category or do they fit the binary male-female gender categories? I did touch on this a little bit um, a few weeks ago. You'll find it in the Digging Deeper podcast, uh, episode number 42. Uh, but I will touch on this a little bit here Um because and I'll mention some different things that I didn't mention in that podcast as well. So the verses in Matthew chapter 19, Jesus is speaking. He says, for there are eunuchs who were born that way, and there are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by others, and there are those who choose to live like eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. The context here is Jesus teaching about divorce and remarriage. So Jesus is addressing the question that he was asked in Matthew chapter 19 and verse 3 where someone says, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any and every reason? And Jesus over the next few verses gives some pretty blunt, strict teaching on the topic of divorce and remarriage. And it's so strict that the disciples said to him, if this is the situation between a husband and wife, it is better not to marry. Jesus' response is this, not everyone can accept this word, but only those to whom it has been given. He then goes on to teach about these three types of eunuchs. So eunuch number one, those who were born that way. Eunuch number two, those who have been made eunuchs by others. And then the third type of eunuchs are those who choose to live like eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. 
Now, the second two eunuchs, uh, I, I guess the explanation for those is, is fairly obvious. But the eunuchs that have been made eunuchs by others. So let's look at this. The term describes a man who has been castrated by having his testicles removed. If you're a Game of Thrones fan, uh, you will know the character Varus. And Varus in Game of Thrones is a eunuch. And there are lots of eunuchs around in society even today. Reading a really interesting article recently about eunuchs in America, and they reckon there are about 600,000 men who are medical eunuchs um, in America. Now, some people, uh, some men, if they are diagnosed with prostate cancer, they will have their testicles removed in order to reduce testosterone, which uh, then reduces the risk of that prostate cancer uh, continuing. Some people, some men, if they are, if prostate cancer is in their family, they will have their testicles removed as a precautionary measure to never develop prostate cancer. A little bit like some women do with a mastectomy if they're at high risk of developing breast cancer sometime in the future. Uh, interesting quote here from the Big Think News website, which is a very good website, by the way, highly reliable reporting. Often their desire to be castrated stems from abuse sustained during childhood. This is talking about other kinds of units here, uh, sometimes homosexuals, uh, exposure to animal castration during youth, or religious condemnation, I suppose they mean of, of sexuality. Others describe themselves as sex addicts or pedophiles desperate for freedom from out-of-control lifestyles or lurid fantasies, and they go in and have themselves castrated uh, as a way of controlling their passions. As I mentioned before, as many as 600,000 men in North, Africa, North America are living as eunuchs for medical reasons. No doubt some of those men's, men will be eunuchs that fit into Jesus' third category. And then there are those who choose to live like eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. This refers to those who, by their own free choice and for the glory of God's kingdom, abstain from marrying or any intimate relationship. They voluntarily remain single and celibate so they can devote all of their time and energy to serve God and others. And I believe we need to greatly admire such people rather than treat them like second-class Christians because they're unmarried. You know, over the years there's been so much pressure in church circles to be married. I, I got married when I was 34. So uh, I remember through my 20s and early 30s, the pressure of people constantly saying, when are you going to get married? You're going to be married. And, and the pressure was on, like marriage was the be all and end all. No, no, no. Singleness is the highest calling. Uh, a single celibate life is the highest calling. And your two greatest, greatest examples for that are Jesus himself and the Apostle Paul. In 1 Corinthians 7 and verse 7, the Apostle Paul wrote these words, I wish that all of you were as I am, but each of you has your own gift from God. One has this gift, another has that. The context here is marriage. The whole chapter is on marriage and singleness. Paul is a single man, likely that he was a divorced man. Uh, he was a member of the Sanhedrin. He was a Pharisee of the Har Pharisee, sorry, a Hebrew of the Hebrews. 
So he was a Pharisee, a member of the Sanhedrin, and as such would have to have been a married man. And so, again, arguing from silence, so we can't prove this, but the likelihood I would suggest to you is that when Paul converted to be a follower of Jesus, that his family rejected him as a result of that, and he lived the rest of his life as a dedicated eunuch following the Lord, a eunuch by his own choice. So the first kind of eunuch that Jesus mentions here, and that's eunuchs who were born that way. This refers to anyone who is unable to function sexually within a heterosexual relationship. People like that may choose not to marry at all, or if they're already married, there needs to be an honest and open communication between husband and wife about making a choice to keep the marriage together because of the many other positive things that their relationship can bring. And there are, I was reading about a book recently about a mixed orientation marriage. And I, and I think the husband was uh, same-sex attracted, the wife wasn't, and uh, they had got married and then he came out to his wife and they decided to stay together because they loved each other so much, even though they know that there are going to be challenges in that journey. I can't remember what that book's called, but you could always always Google it. Examples of people Jesus may have been referring to could be those with a certain disability, impotence, people who identify with a non-heterosexual gender or have had surgery that has rendered them incapable of sexual intercourse. It also includes those who are intersex, which is a general term used for a variety of conditions in which a person is born with a reproductive or sexual anatomy that doesn't fit the typical definitions of female and male. And so inter intersex people, just like Jesus said, are born that way. You know the, the acronym that we often use, LGBTIQ, the I there stands for intersex. And so back to the question, are those born eunuchs another category or do they fit the binary male-female gender categories? A eunuch may identify as male or female, but they also may not. I don't believe the Bible teaches uh, a, a, a gender binary anyway. The, the verses actually that are often quoted about gender binary are Genesis 1, 26, 27, so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. I want you to notice the unusual clunky language that we read there in Genesis chapter 1. Jewish scholars explain the unusual language as meaning that God created the first human being as an androgynous person containing both male and female characteristics simultaneously. And so we would used to refer to people like that as hermaphrodite, now intersex, intersex rather, or asexual or a genderless person. The next part of the verse, male and female, he created them, is called a merism. And a merism is a figure of speech in which a totality is expressed by two contrasting parts. And so you might say, well, I searched high and low. What that means is I searched high and low and everywhere in between. And so in Genesis 1.27, God created the human being as male and female is a merism. So the Bible is teaching here that humans are male and female 
and every combination in between. And so in Matthew chapter 19, Jesus is describing a third possible gender that he calls the eunuch. Some eunuchs, Jesus says, were born that way. The Jewish legal tradition identifies six distinct genders, certainly assuming as normative male and female, but including as well terms which we now refer to as intersex and transgender, gay and lesbian. And I go into detail on that on the Digging Deeper episode number, 30, uh, number 42. One of the most stunning things in scripture is watching the changing attitudes towards those who do not fit into a gender binary. According to the law of Moses, eunuchs were excluded from the kingdom of God. Oh, the king, sorry, the temple of, of God. Uh, Deuteronomy 23 verse 1, no eunuch is to enter the congregation of God. The NIV puts it this way, no one who has been emasculated by crushing or cutting may enter the assembly of the Lord. But then comes a wonderful promise of a time when things would change. And we read this in Isaiah chapter 56 and verses 3 to 5. Don't let the eunuchs say, I am a dried up tree with no children and no future. For this is what the Lord says, I will bless those eunuchs who keep my Sabbath days holy and who choose to do what pleases me and commit their lives to me. I will give them within the walls of my house, not banished anymore, a memorial and a name far greater than sons and daughters could give. For the name I give them is an everlasting one. I will never, it will never disappear. And then, of course, in Acts chapter 8, we read the story of Philip being uh, taken away from an incredible revival in Samaria, led down to the Gaza Strip, the middle of the desert, and has this incredible encounter with a eunuch who'd been to Jerusalem to worship. Odds are he wasn't allowed in the temple, but he's reading scripture and uh, Philip explains to him the way of Jesus and this man gives his life to Christ. And so in scripture, we see eunuchs, first of all, excluded, then welcomed, and finally in Acts 8, literally pursued by the Holy Spirit. And I'll finish here with, with these questions. How is the church going on pursuing people who do not fit into the heterosexual binary? Are we pursuing such people or are we rejecting them? We hope you enjoyed this podcast. Every Wednesday, a new episode of Digging Deeper is released. If you enjoy this podcast, please share it with others and rate and review us on iTunes. That goes a long way to help other people find us. If you have a question or topic you'd like Rob to address, please contact us at Rob Buckingham's Public Figure Facebook page. Join us next week as Pastor Rob answers questions about the soul. What is the soul? And is it possible to sell your soul for worldly gain? We'll also discover what Paul meant when he said he handed a person over to Satan. We hope you'll join us then.